Section 34 of The Epidemics of the Middle Ages by Eustace Hecke Translated by Benjamin Guy Babington This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sweating Sickness Chapter 6 Sweating Sicknesses Estigarto pathos lucis ton desmon tes eis zdoen dunamios Areteus Section 1 the cardiac disease of the ancients morbus cardiacus thus by the autumn of fifteen fifty one the sweating sickness had vanished from the earth it has never since appeared as it did then and at earlier periods and it is not to be supposed that it will ever again break forth as a great epidemic in the same form and limited to a four-and-twenty hours course for it is manifest that the mode of living of the people had a great share in its origin, and this will never again be the same as in those days. Yet nature is not wanting in similar phenomena, which have appeared in ancient and modern times, and if we take into account the great frequency of cognate rheumatic maladies, it is possible that isolated cases may have sometimes occurred in which repletion of impure fluids and violently inflammatory treatment have augmented a rheumatic fever even to the destruction of nervous vitality by means of profuse perspiration only perhaps that they ran a longer course which does not constitute an essential difference and under totally different names whereby attention is misled of all the diseases that have ever appeared which can in any way be compared to the english sweating sickness we have principally three to look back upon the cardiac disease of the ancients the picardy sweat and the sweating fever of reutingen the first was for reasons which have already been mentioned almost unknown to the learned of the sixteenth century and it is a matter of surprise that k himself who had chosen for his favorite the best roman physician women celsus could have so entirely overlooked his by no means unimportant statements respecting this disease. Ullier is the only author who ventures a comparison of the English sweating sickness with the ancient cardiac disease. His few and almost lost words remained, however, unheeded. Nor are the differences between the two diseases small. But to return. The disease of which we are speaking appeared for a period of 500 years, from 300 B.C. to 200 after Christ, and was a common, almost everyday occurrence, which is often mentioned even by non-medical writers. It was exceedingly dangerous and even esteemed fatal, and as it was far above the reach of Greek physiology, there were not wanting extraordinary opinions respecting its nature, and bold and singular modes of treatment to which those who were attacked were subjected. The name cardiac disease, morbus cardiacus, nosos cardiacae, and probably also nosos carditis, was not bestowed by medical men but by the people, who in the fourth century before Christ, for the name is as ancient as that period, could not know that the learned would dispute on that subject. Some affirmed, and among them men of great authority, such as Erasistratus, Asclepiades, and Aretaeus, that the people were in the right, so to call the disease, that the heart was actually the part affected, and that their knowledge of the heart's functions was by no means small. Others, on the contrary, would only acknowledge in that name an expression indicative not of the particular seat of the disease, but only of its importance, inasmuch as the heart is well adapted as the center and source of life to indicate this. Others, again, who attempted more refined conjectures, wished to represent the pericardium as the seat of the malady, because darting pains were sometimes felt in the region of the heart, or the diaphragm, or the lungs, or even the liver. The opinions were numerous. The actual knowledge was small. The cardiac disease began with rigors and a numbness in the limbs, and sometimes even throughout the whole body. The pulse then took on the worst condition, 
was small, weak, frequent, empty, and as if dissolving. In a more advanced stage, unequal and fluttering, until it became completely extinct. Patients were affected with hallucinations. They were sleepless, despaired of their recovery, and were usually covered suddenly with an ill-savored perspiration over the whole body, whence the disorder was likewise called diaphoresis. Sometimes, however, a washy sweat broke out, first on the face and neck. This then spread itself over the whole body, assumed a very disagreeable odor, became clammy and like water in which flesh had been macerated, and ran through the bedclothes in streams, so that the patient seemed to be melting away. The breath was short and panting, almost to annihilation, insustentabilis. Those affected were in continual fear of suffocation, tossed to and fro in the greatest anguish, and with a very thin and trembling voice uttered forth only broken words. They constantly felt an insufferable oppression in the left side, riven over the whole chest, and in the paroxysms which were ushered in with a fainting fit, or were followed by one, the heart was tumultuous and palpitated, without any alteration in the smallness of the pulse. The countenance was pale as death, the eyes sunk in their sockets, and when the disease took a fatal turn, all was darkness around them. The hands and feet turned blue, and whilst the heart, notwithstanding the universal coldness of the body, still beat violently, they for the most part retained possession of their senses. A few only wandered a short time before death, while others were even seized with convulsions and endowed with the power of prophecy. Finally, the nails became curved on their cold hands, the skin was wrinkled, and thus the sufferers resigned their spirit without any mitigation of their miserable condition. A striking resemblance is plainly perceived from this description between the ancient cardiac disease and the English sweating sickness in the most exquisite cases of each. In both, the same palpitation of the heart, the same alteration of the voice, the same anxiety, the same impediment to respiration, and thence the same affection of the nerves of the chest, the same ill-scented sweat, and by means of this sweat, the same fatal evacuation. In short, all the essential symptoms arising from the same circle of functions. For in the sweating pestilences of the ancients, as well as the moderns, the nerves of the abdomen remained unaffected. The liver, intestines, and kidneys took no part in the primary affection. The diaphragm, as in the English sweating sickness, formed the partition. Hence, the acuteritaeus did not hesitate to call the cardiac disease fainting, syncope with certainly an unusual extension of the notion implied by this term, which in its common acceptation excludes the turbulent commotion of the heart. In the affection of the brain some difference occurs, for though the hallucination afforded an unfavorable prognostic in both diseases, yet the fatal stupor was peculiar to the English sweating sickness, no observer having made mention of it in the cardiac disease. Greater and altogether essential differences between this affection and the English sweating sickness appear in another respect. There is every reason to suppose that the cardiac disease first appeared in the time of Alexander the Great, that is to say, at the end of the 4th century before Christ. For the Hippocratic physicians were unacquainted with it. Erasistratus, who was body physician to Seleucus Nicator, and was a universally celebrated professor at Alexandria under the first Ptolemy, being the first to mention it. If that age be compared even superficially with that of Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth, and Africa, Asia Minor, and the south of Europe with England, we shall easily be convinced that the two diseases, notwithstanding the agreement in their main symptoms, could not be the same. Moreover, much was comprehended by the ancients under the name of Morbus Cardiacus, which on a near examination proves not to be one and the same definite form of morbid action, for sometimes 
This affection is spoken of as an independent disease. Sometimes it is mentioned only as a symptom superadded to others. As a kind of transition from other very various diseases, such as has occurred in modern times. Soranus mentions as such diseases continued fevers accompanied by much heat, and reckons them among the caucus, that is, an inflammatory bilious fever, to which Areteus also saw the cardiac disease superadded. These fevers passed on the fifth or sixth day into the cardiac disease, and such a transition occurred chiefly on the critical days. In a similar sense, Celsus speaks even of phrenites, under which name we are here to understand all inflammatory fevers accompanied by violent delirium, with the exception of actual inflammation of the brain. Thus we see that the cardiac disease arose and increased on a very different soil from other diseases, and was, to furnish an ancient example, as far from being independent under these circumstances as lethargy was in similar cases. But there was doubtless an independent idiopathic form of the cardiac disease. Whether this was febrile or not, the most celebrated physicians of ancient times were not agreed. Now, how could they ever have differed upon the subject if the cardiac disease had always appeared only as a sequelae on the fifth or sixth day of inflammatory fevers. Apollophanes, a disciple of Erasistratus and physician to Antiochus I, considered it with his master as constantly febrile, and his opinion prevailed for a long time. Perhaps he was in the right, for it is probable that in the first half of the third century the disease was much more violent than at a subsequent period. His celebrated contemporary Demetrius of Apamia, disciple of Herophilus, affirmed that he had recognized fever only in the beginning of the disease, and that it disappeared in its further progress. Very soon most physicians decided that it was not febrile, but Asclepiades distinguished a febrile from a non-febrile form of the cardiac disease, and it is certain that this physician was a very accurate observer. Themison and Thessalus also agreed with him. Aritaeus described in a cursory manner the febrile form only, and perhaps was not acquainted with any other. Soranus followed in the essential points Asclepiades, the founder of his school, and later writers generally regarded the inward heat, the hot breath, and the burning thirst, symptoms which were occasionally less marked, as proofs of the febrile nature of the disease. Numerous theoretical views belonging to particular schools, of which we do not here treat, were intermingled with these, and upon the whole that form seemed to have been esteemed as non-febrile, in which the signs of feverish excitement appeared less marked. In all cases the cardiac disease set in with external coldness and with a small contracted quick pulse. Symptoms which with certainty indicate fever. Respecting the course of the cardiac disease, we are not furnished with sufficient information. It was no doubt very rapid, for the frame could not long endure symptoms of so violent a kind. And a disorder must of necessity soon have come to a crisis. Yet from the ample directions for treatment, we may conclude that it lasted at least several days. If the perspiration was well surmounted, patients seemed to recover rapidly, and their sufferings appeared to them, according to the expressions of Aretaeus, like a dream out of which they awoke to a consciousness of the increased acumen of their senses. But the termination was not always so fortunate. The disease was very dangerous, and in many, after the occurrence of an incomplete crisis, an insidious fever remained behind which ended in a consumption. The whole phenomenon was altogether peculiar, and among existing diseases there are none which bear any comparison with it. There must therefore have been something in the whole state of existence among the ancients which favored the formation of the cardiac disease, that it arose oftener in summer than in winter, that it attacked men more frequently than women, 
and especially young people full of life, and hot-blooded, plethoric persons who used much bodily exercise, will learn from credible observers. In this respect, therefore, it bore a resemblance to the English sweating sickness. We may also add that indigestion, repletion, drunkenness, and likewise grief and fear, but especially vomiting and the employment of the bath after dinner, occasioned an attack of the malady. Let us call to mind the habits of the ancients. It was in the time of Alexander that oriental luxury was first introduced. Gluttony became a part of the enjoyment of life, and warm baths a necessary refinement in sensuality, which, just at this time, were philosophically established by Epicurus. Nor was this the last instance in which philosophers encouraged the errors and infirmities of human society. Here again, therefore, as in the English sweating sickness, we meet with the relaxed state of skin, and the foul repletion engendered by the same indulgence in sensuality which we have found to exist in the sixteenth century. How the corruption of moral increased, and to what a frightful height it was carried among the Romans, it is not necessary here further to elucidate, and we may take it for a fact that in consequence of it the general constitution of the ancients underwent a peculiar modification, that this relaxation of skin and gross repletion were propagated from generation to generation, and that, as among chronic diseases, those of a gouty character were its more frequent results, so among the inflammatory the cardiac disease made its appearance as the general effect of this kind of life. Where, however, such a system of life existed among whole communities, the original and peculiar occasion was not needed in every individual case to bring the predisposition for disease which propagated itself by hereditary taint to an actual eruption. Shocks to the constitution of quite a different kind were often sufficient for the purpose. Thus among the Romans, it was by no means always the case that gluttony and relaxation of the skin immediately gave rise to the cardiac disease, while on the other hand the usual faintness, induced by too copious bloodletting, passed into this impetuous agitation of the heart accompanied by colliquative sweats, and all over-violent perspirations in other diseases were apt to take the same dangerous course. We must here also take into account a practice among the Romans which was very injurious and yet rendered sacred by the laws, namely visiting the public baths late in the evening just after the principal meal and awaiting the digestion of their food in these places of soft indulgence. How much must the tendency of sweating disorders have been favored by these means? Surmises founded on the facts already stated can alone be offered respecting the nature of the ancient cardiac disease. The ancients gave us no certain intelligence upon it, for their mode of observing did not lead to that object at which modern medicine aims. That the cardiac disease was not a rheumatic character seems deducible from several circumstances. From the quality of the atmosphere in southern climates, which is not so favorable to rheumatic maladies as to give rise to a distinctly defined form of that complaint throughout a period of five hundred years. From the nature of the so-called inflammatory fever, which exhibited no rheumatic symptoms in its course. And lastly, from the treatment of the cardiac disease, for it was a common practice to cool down the diaphoretic patients in the midst of their perspiration by sponging them with cold water, to expose them to the air, and some physicians went so far as to advise cold baths and effusions. How could they have ventured upon such remedies if the cardiac disease had been of a rheumatic nature? In the sweating fevers of the sixteenth century, every abrupt refrigeration, every exposure of the skin was fatal. It is thence to be inferred that the English sweating sickness differed from the ancient cardiac disease in its rheumatic character. Even although both diseases were founded in common on an impure gross repletion and relaxation of skin, and the essential phenomena of both went through the same course, 
not to advert to other differences which are manifest from what has been stated. The remaining treatment of the cardiac disorder should not be altogether passed over in this place, because it shows very clearly the general style of thinking of the medical profession, as also certain metaphysical excitations which are innate in that profession, and of which there is therefore a repetition in all ages. For whilst some proceeded with commendable care and caution, and Aretaeus feared a fatal result from the slightest error, others again would fain render excited nature obedient to their rough command by means of the most violent remedies. It therefore occasionally happened that in their over-hasty activity they were enabled to distinguish between a salutary perspiration and a dangerous diaphoresis. This they suppressed at all hazards, and thus sent their patients to the shades of their fathers. Others forthwith flew to chrysippic bandaging, the great means of suppressing profuse evacuations, and even violent spasms. Others were for obviating the debility as quickly as possible by means of a nourishing diet, and overloaded the stomach as if the recovery of strength depended entirely upon eating. Others allowed as much wine as possible to be drunk for twenty-four hours together, even to the extent of producing intoxication. And Asclepiades selected for this extraordinary death-bed carousal the Greek salt wine for the sake of bringing on a diarrhea, whereby the open pores of the skin might again close and the two mobile atoms might be carried towards the bowels. With the same object he ordered active clusters, for if they succeeded in causing a full evacuation, he maintained that the perspiration must necessarily be arrested. And Demos of the Methodic sect recommended even clusters of cold water, and whatever else the rashness of medical men had full-heartedly contrived, acting on the ancient notion that severe diseases always required violent remedies. Aretaeus recommended bloodletting, which others pronounced to be nothing short of certain death. He had, however, a notion that the causus was the foundation of the cardiac disease, and perhaps he was right. The cautious employment of wine was apparently of great use, and, what makes sight surprise, physicians gave detailed and frivolous precepts on the choice and enjoyment of food. If the irritable stomach rejected this repeatedly, they even went so far, according to the Roman method, as to make the patient vomit both before and after his meals, in order that the organ might thus bear the repeated use of nourishment. It was also asserted that the stomach retained food and wine better if the body was previously rubbed all over with bruised onions. All this affords us an insight into the nature of this remarkable disease, which has now so completely vanished from the world. Finally, when astringent decoctions proved fruitless, particular confidence was placed in the application of various powders to the surface of the body, conjointly with the use of light bedclothes and the avoidance of feather beds, which the effeminacy of the ancients had already introduced. As astringents, they selected pomegranate bark, the leaves of roses, blackberries and myrtles, as also fuller's earth, gypsum, alum, litharge, slaked lime, and when nothing else was at hand, even common road dust. The efficacy of some of these extraordinary remedies cannot be denied. At least it has been proved in modern times with respect to alkalis, which are of a somewhat similar nature, that they are of great service where there is an abundant determination of acid towards the skin. And it is very probable that the perspiration of these diaphoretic patients contained much acid. Section 2. The Picardy Sweat. Suite de Picard. Suite Miliaire. The Picardy Sweat is a decided miliary fever, which has often prevailed not only in Picardy, but also in other provinces of France for more than a hundred years, and even at the present time exists in some places as an endemic disease. 
We have pointed out the affinity between the English sweating sickness and miliary fever. Both are rheumatic fevers, the former of 24 hours duration, the latter running a course of at least seven days. In the former there was no eruption, or, if in isolated cases an eruption made its appearance, it was doubtless subordinate, not essential. In the miliary fever, on the contrary, the eruption is so essential that this disease may be considered as a completely exanthematous form of rheumatic fever. The history of miliary fever is full of important facts, and the sweating fever of Picardy forms but a variety of it. The eruption in itself is of very ancient occurrence, and was probably, as at present, observed time immemorial in conjunction with the Pitechiae occurring as a critical metastasis of the oriental glandular plague, perhaps even in the ancient plague recorded by Thucydides. It also occasionally accompanied petechial fever, as unquestionably did smallpox and many other diseases, in the same manner as we now see. For the miliary eruption is a very common symptom, which is easily induced, and increases the danger of various other accidental complications. This is different, however, from the idiopathic miliary fever, which did not exist either before or even at the period of the English sweating sickness, but occurred as an epidemic frequently mentioned in Saxony a hundred years later, 1652. We cannot, therefore, consider this eruptive disease as having proceeded from the English sweating sickness in the same manner as the petechial fever had its probable origin in the glandular plague, even supposing a more decided inclination of the English sweating sickness to the eruptive character could be proved than is possible from the facts afforded. A whole century intervened, and what vast national revolutions! This same separation of so long a period makes also against the supposition that the English sweating sickness was an interrupted miliary fever, which exhausted its power by too luxuriant activity of the skin on the first day, before the eruption made its appearance. Moreover, the similarity and isolation of all the five epidemic sweating fevers, as regards the brevity of the course of the disease, and the absence of all transition forms of any duration, which certainly would have existed, had nature intended gradually to form a miliary fever out of the English sweating sickness, lead to the same conclusion. But to return to the miliary fever. Some forms of this disease have been observed in which a profuse perspiration, in combination with nervous symptoms, has endangered life on the first day of the attack. Equally often, too, the eruption has appeared fully formed on the very first day. And if we duly consider, as we ought, the regular course of miliary fever whenever it has assumed an epidemic character, we shall always find, even in that case, a development of symptoms differing fundamentally from those of the English sweating sickness. If occasionally instances of miliary fever occurred in which no eruption came out, as was the case recently, in 1821, they were to be considered in the same light as other acute eruptive diseases, as, for instance, scarlet fever, in which nature indulges in a like irregularity, without, however, altering the essence of those diseases. And since, finally, it has been observed in many cases that the miliary eruption could be prevented by the application of cold at the commencement, a distinguished modern physician has attached great consequence to this circumstance, as showing that miliary fever and the English sweating sickness were the same disease. But a check of this kind is at all events impossible in those miliary fevers where the eruption break forth on the first or second day. And moreover, experience tells us that many other diseases also, such as inflammations, rheumatisms, gastric fevers, and even abdominal typhus, may be arrested in their course and confined within narrower bounds, so as not to manifest all their symptoms. We are therefore completely entitled to consider the appearance of the miliary sweating fevers as altogether a novelty, 
originating in the middle of the 17th century and having no discoverable connection with the English sweating sickness. There have been in Germany since the year 1652 many visitations of miliary fever, but this disease did not increase much in extent until about the year 1715, when it spread into France and the neighboring countries, particularly Piedmont, whilst England remained almost entirely free from it. The French epidemics were, upon the whole, much more severe than the German, and on this account we select one of the most ancient, and also the most recent of them, in order to give a general view of miliary fever as compared with the English sweating sickness. The miliary fever first appeared in Picardy in the year 1718 in Le Vimeux, Venemacus Pagus, a district on the north of the Somme and on the south of the Bresle, and the department of the Lower Seine. It increased annually in extent, most places in Picardy were visited by it, and it was not long before it was seen in Flanders. We are still in possession of a very distinct account, which we will here detail, of an epidemic at Abbeville in the year 1733, where the miliary fever had existed fifteen years previously. There were scarcely any premonitory symptoms, but the disease commenced at once with pinching pains in the stomach, extreme prostration of strength, dull headache, and difficulty of breathing interrupted by sighing. Patients complained of violent heat and were bathed in a pungent sweat of foul odor, while nausea was occasionally felt. Sparks appeared before the eyes, and the countenance became flushed. Patients were tormented with burning thirst, and yet the tongue was as moist as in perfect health. The pulse was frequent and undulating, without hardness, and in the course of a few hours an insufferable itching came on over the whole body, accompanied by distressing jactitation. Upon this, thickly studied, red, round pustules, not bigger than mustard seeds, broke out, wherefrom patients emitted an extremely disagreeable urinous odor, which was imparted to those who were about their persons. Sometimes they had evacuations, at other times they suffered from constipation, but all complained of want of sleep, and when they felt an inclination to doze, they were again aroused by fresh chilliness. Many bled at the nose till they fainted, and with women the menstrual discharge often appeared, though not at the proper time. The urine was at times deficient in quantity, at others discharged in abundance and without any critical signs. If pale and plentiful, it betokened delirium. Then the eyelids twitched convulsively, a humming noise commenced in the ears, and the patient tossed about restlessly. The pulse became strong, irregular, and like the breathing, very quick. The countenance grew redder and redder, and soon after the sufferers, as though struck by lightning, were seized with lethargy, and expired generally in the act of coughing and spitting blood. Such was the nature of the disease when it attacked many at once. There were, however, several varieties. With some, the miliary vesicles broke out on the second day, with others not before the third, and if all went on favorably, they lost their redness on the seventh day, and the skin all over the body scaled off like bran. The fever was sometimes extremely violent, at others, without apparent cause, very mild. At least one might be deceived at the commencement of the attack by the apparently favorable symptoms. For those who in the morning had scarcely any notable degree of fever, who neither suffered from any anxious sensation nor violent heat, in whom no subsaltus tendinum was perceptible, no want of perspiration, nor any retrocession of the eruption, were sometimes, towards the evening, seized with frenzy and died in a state of lethargy. Evacuations which alleviate other diseases made this miliary fever worse. Favorable symptoms could never be depended on. In the midst of profuse perspiration the patient died, either from constipation or diarrhea. A copious discharge of urine was a bad sign. Composure was succeeded by delirium, cheerfulness by lethargy. 
The disease was throughout treacherous and disguised. It was particularly necessary for those suffering from pleurisy or any inflammatory fevers to be guarded against its approach. Many fell sacrifices to this epidemic who thought themselves in a state of convalescence, and with such it was easier to foretell than to prevent the consequences. In cases of this kind, the miliary vesicles were less red and grew pale sooner, but if the disease attacked a healthy person, then they were redder and continued longer. Of those who recovered, not a few suffered for many months, nay, even for a whole year from night perspirations, without fever or sleeplessness, but with an eruption of little miliary vesicles, which disappeared again on the slightest exposure to cold. The later miliary epidemic fevers in France, which are distinguished by the name of the Picardy sweating sickness, are generally very well described, so much so that we have few epidemics of modern times whose course and succession we can trace so well. But the epidemic of 1821, which raged in the departments of the Oise and of the Seine and Oise from March to October, has been observed by all with the greatest care, including men of distinguished talent. We shall give the description of this disease. There were no constant premonitory symptoms. It often broke out quite suddenly, but many complained some days before of debility, despondency, want of appetite, nausea, headache, sometimes also of giddiness and slight chilliness. Many retired to rest in health and awoke during the night with the disease, covered with a perspiration, which ceased only with death or recovery. With some, the sweating sickness was preceded for some hours, or even only for some moments, by a scarcely perceptible feverish commotion, accompanied with burning heat, or with a sensation of pain which ran through every limb, and nearly always with spasms in the stomach. With others, the disease announced itself by lacerating rheumatic pains, which, gradually increasing, they became bedridden. The mouth was foul, the taste at times bitter, the tongue white, more rarely tinged with yellow, and thus it remained till the patient was restored. The sufferer was shortly covered with a thick, peculiarly fetid sweat that certainly produced alleviation, but became very intolerable to him from its unpleasant stench, which was even communicated to the clothes of the bystanders. In the meantime, it was discovered by the pulse that the fever had considerably abated, but on the third day the patient was seized with convulsive spasms in the stomach, great oppression in the chest, and a sensation of suffocation, symptoms which caused him unsupportable anguish. These attacks, accompanied by hiccup and eructation, continued for several hours, and returned from time to time, an eruption, partly papular, spontaneously breaking out first on the neck, then on the shoulders down to the hands and breast, less frequently on the thighs and face. The little pimples were of a pale red color and conical, with glistening heads, and between them appeared innumerable small miliary pustules, filled with transparent serous fluid, which soon thickened and assumed a whiter hue. At the time, and previous to the breaking out of the exanthem, the patient experienced a very severe burning and pricking sensation in the skin, which nevertheless sometimes occurred on the second or fourth day, and which increased sometimes in one part, sometimes in another, when the sweating declined. Towards the fifth day, however, after the sweating had entirely ceased, the complaint grew worse again. The spasms and paroxysms of suffocation returned, and they were succeeded by renewed eruptions of the exanthem. A decided improvement, however, shortly took place. The little pimples lost their redness, the miliary vesicles dried away, and at a period from the seventh to the tenth day, recovery commenced under a general exfoliation of the cuticle. Sometimes the eruption did not appear, whether the patients were under medical treatment or left to their own guidance. But with those few in whom there was an absence of miliary vesicles, 
that peculiar pricking and itching of the skin did not take place. Between the fifth and seventh day, the patients usually complained of great weakness and had a desire to eat. A few tablespoonfuls of wine then agreed with them very well. For the rest, neither thirst nor lethargy was observable, but it was particularly remarkable that the urine was clear and abundant. Up to the seventh day, a confined state of bowels was usual, and with the exception of the already mentioned attacks of tightness and oppression, the breathing remained free, though with great sleeplessness during the whole malady. Nothing morbid was to be observed in the chest, and the patients laid stretched out at full length, so that there was no occasion at any time to raise their heads. Such was the regular course of this miliary fever, but its progress was often accelerated by very dangerous symptoms, and occasionally it proved fatal within a few hours. If at the time of the attack the patients were very restless and talkative, the eyes glistening, the pulse without being hard, tumultuous, and the edge of the tongue reddened, delirium soon succeeded, and then convulsions and death. Great depression of the spirits was a very bad symptom. Bleeding was never of any avail, yet the menstrual discharge did not interrupt the course of the disease. There was in general a great degree of malignancy perceptible in the malady, as was also rendered apparent by the course of the epidemic. If the miliary sweating fever broke out in a fresh place, two or three persons only were thereupon attacked, and that favorably, which led to a supposition that the evil had all passed away, for during the next fifteen or twenty days not any fresh attacks were heard of. Suddenly, however, the epidemic reappeared with increased violence. The great number of the sufferers spread consternation and terror among the inhabitants, and the cases of death became frequent. After this first burst of fury, the epidemic grew more mild again, so that many patients were not confined to their beds at all. This mitigation of the miliary fever was likewise manifested by the prolongation of its course beyond the seventh day. If we compare this epidemic with the one observed in Abville in 1773, we shall find between them but very trifling differences, which would appear still more clearly in some of the intermediate visitations, thus conforming to what has been observed in other eruptive maladies. It is consequently evident that the miliary fevers which have appeared in France in recent times do not differ in any essential point from those of more ancient date. The surest proof of their identity is their persistence for nearly two centuries, and from the manner in which they have presented themselves to observation, they are to be considered as distinct from the English sweating sickness, though certainly allied to it. It would exceed our limits to pursue this inquiry further, but it may be as well to give the following short catalogue of the most important miliary epidemics. 1652, Leipzig. 1660, Augsburg. 1666, Bavaria. 1672, Hungary. 1675, Hamburg. 1680, Germany to a great extent. 1689, Philipsburg. 1690, Stuttgart, Düsseldorf, Erfurt, Jena. 1694, Berlin. 1700, Preslau, 1709, Danzig, Marienburg, 1712, Mümpelgrad, 1713, saint valery Somme, 1714-15, Laibach, 1715, Preslau, Turin, 1718, Tübingen, Abwehl, Somme, 1720, Frankfurt on the Main, 1724, Turin, Vercelli, 1726, Aki, Guise, N, 1728, Chambéry, Annecy, Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne, Savoy, Carmagnola, Vercelli, Ivrea, Biella, 1729, Vienna, Austria, 1730, Pignerol, 1731, Fossano, 
1732, Nizza, Rivoli. 1733, Fossano, Asti, Lanti, Acqui, Basel, Silesia. 1734, Strasbourg, Lower Rhine, Acqui, Lanti. 1735, Trino, Lanti, Freneuse, Lower Seine, Vimeux, Seine et Oise, Orléans, Loiret, Pluvier, Loiret, Mont, Villeneuve. 1735, Saint-Georges, Seine et Marne. Bohemia, Denmark, Sweden, Russia. 1738, Lusarche, Royaumont, Seine et Oise. Souza, Crescentino. 1740, Caen, Calvados, Provence, Seine et Marne. Vire, Calvados, Bertonville, Eure, Falaise, Calvados. 1741, Rouen, Lower Tartana, Valencia, Alexandria, London. 1742, Quebec, Lower Thévé, Turin, Sorellano, Alba, Ivrea, Kerasco, Fossano. 1743, Villafranca. 1744, Acqui. 1746, Zurich. 1747, Paris, Seine, Beaumont, Seine et Oise, Chambly, Oise, Modena, Lodi, Mantua, Piacenza. 1750, Schaffhausen, Bern, Geneva, Beauvais, Oise. 1751, Villafranca. 1752, Fernese, Seine et Oise. 1753, Souza. 1754, Valcuiseux, Seine et Oise. 1755, Novara. 1756, Cusset, Allier. Boulogne, Pas-de-Calais. 1757, Montaigu de Combray, Puy-de-Dôme. 1758, Amiens, environ, Somme. 1759, Paris, Seine, Guise, N, Côte-Bec, Lower Seine. 1760, Alençon, Orne. 1763, Vire, Calvados. 1763, 64, Bayeux, Calvados. 1765, Balleroy, Bazoc, Calvados. Saint-Georges, Saint-Quentin, Calvados. 1766, Campagny, Calvados. 1767, tain Orne, 1768-69, Saint-Quentin, N, 1770, Louvier, Eure, 1771, Montargis, Loiret, 1772, Ardivier, environ, 1773, Ardivier, Oise, 1776, L'Aigle, Orne, 1777, Joie, Seine et Oise, 1782, Castel Nodary, Voici Saint-Léger, Saint-Evoise. 1783, Beaumont, Seine-Evoise. 1791, Meru, Oise. 1810, Nourard, Vieux-Tran, Oise. 1812, Rosheim and many other places, Lower Rhine. 1821, La Chapelle, Saint-Pierre and sixty places around, Oise, Seine-Evoise. Section 3 the Rottingen's Wedding Sickness. We now come to a phenomenon which, notwithstanding its short duration and very limited extension, is one of the most memorable of this century. Up to the present time, its real importance has not been recognized, because the clouds of self-sufficient ignorance have prevented our taking a survey of the formation of diseases throughout long periods of time. It has been sunk for an age into the sea of oblivion, from whence we will now draw it forth to the light of day. In November 1802, a very hot and dry summer had been succeeded by incessant rain. Thick fogs spread over the country, and enveloped such places in central Germany as were inaccessible to ventilation. Amongst others, the small Franconian town of Röttingen, situated on the river Tauber, and surrounded by mountains. Scarcely had a few weeks elapsed 
when unexpectedly, towards the 25th of November, an extremely fatal disease broke out in the town, which was without example in the memory of its inhabitants and totally unknown to the physicians of the country. Strong, vigorous young men were suddenly seized with unspeakable dread. The heart became agitated and beat violently against the ribs. A profuse, sour, ill-smelling perspiration broke out over the whole body, and at the same time they experienced a lacerating pain in the nape of the neck, as if a violent rheumatic fever had taken possession of their tendinous tissues. This pain ceased sometimes very quickly, and if it then shifted to the chest, the distressing palpitation of the heart recommenced. A spasmodic trembling of the whole body ensued. The sufferers fainted, their limbs became rigid, and thus they breathed their last. In most cases, all this occurred within four and twenty hours. They did not all, however, succumb under the first attack, but as soon as the accelerated pulse had sunk to the lowest ebb of smallness and feebleness, a corresponding effect being observable in the respiration, the violent pain would in some cases return to the outward parts. The patient then felt a benumbing pressure and stiffness in the nape of the neck, and the pulse and respiration became restored again as in health, but the perspiration continued to pour incessantly down the skin. This apparent safety was, however, very deceptive, for a renewed palpitation of the heart unexpectedly commenced, accompanied by feeble pulse, and then death was often inevitable. It was remarkable that the patients, though bathed in perspiration, had very little thirst, and the tongue was not dry, not even foul, but retained its natural moisture. With most, however, the urine was scanty, as the skin, under the increasing debility, permitted too much fluid to stream forth through its pores. If the disease passed off without heating sudorifics, then in general no eruption made its appearance. The malady then continued till the sixth day, but on the first only did it display its malignant symptoms, for by the second the sweating diminished and lost every unfavorable quality, so that increased transpiration of the skin without any other symptoms of importance alone remained, and on the sixth day the patient was perfectly restored. Had there been in Röttingen a physician at hand from the commencement, well skilled in medical history, and who would have adopted the old English treatment of the sweating sickness, this new fever would have appeared but as a perfectly mild disease, and would certainly have carried off but few of the inhabitants of this peaceful little town. As it was, however, the scenes of Lübeck and Zwickau were renewed, and it seemed as if the innumerable victims to the hot treatment and to Kegeler's truculent medical work had descended to the grave in vain. The sufferers were, as in the sixteenth century, literally stewed to death, for the moment the people imagined that they knew how nature meant to escape, they ordered feather beds to be heaped on the perspiring patient, so that the mouth and nose alone remained uncovered. Doors and windows were tightly closed, and the stove emitted a glowing heat, while a most intolerable odor of perspiration streamed forth from beneath the broad and lofty beds added to which that two and even more patients were often lying in the same room, nay, even stowed together under the same mountain of feathers, and in order that inward heat might not be wanting, pots of theriaca were swallowed, and the patient was incessantly piled with elder electuary. Thus the bad humors were expelled together with the perspiration, and whether the sufferers were suffocated or surmounted, as by a miracle, this maltreatment of nature, a conviction was felt that the most salutary remedies had been employed, and when at last eruptions of various colors broke out, it was considered as certain that the poison had been carried off with them. The citizens of Reutningen, therefore, fell into the same erroneous opinion, which upheld by medical schools had time immemorial increased inflammatory diseases, particularly the exanthematous, and caused them to become malignant. The above-mentioned eruptions 
were of various sorts, miliary vesicles of every form and color, filled with an acrid fluid, actual blistery eruptions, panthagus, and even petechia, and it is to be observed that the patients during the first days of the sweating fever never suffered from that peculiar pricking sensation over the whole body which precedes the eruption of malaria, but complained only, and that not always, of a local itching where the eruption had broken out. It was equally rare to observe a regular disquamation of the skin, and it is therefore to be assumed that the eruptions were only symptomatic and not by any means necessarily connected with the disease, as in the decidedly miliary fevers. The disease excited from its very commencement the greatest consternation, and as it was increased, even from the first days of its appearance, by the sudorific system of treatment, deaths were multiplied. The continual peal of funeral bells struck mortal terror, as of old in Shrewsbury, into the hearts of both sick and healthy, and this oppressed little town was shunned as a pest hole by the inhabitants of the surrounding neighborhood. At the commencement of the disease they were entirely without medical advice, till a skillful physician arrived from the vicinity, and as most of the inhabitants were already attacked with the sweating fever, he immediately prescribed the proper treatment but the powers of one man are not sufficient amid such confusion to contend with the deeply rooted prejudices of the people, and so they continued in most houses to expel by heat and thoriaca both perspiration and life together. Till at last, on the 3rd of December, Dr. Zinner of Würzburg arrived, without whom the remembrance of this remarkable disease would have been obliterated and conjointly with his gallant colleague, like the anonymous physician formerly in Zwickau, subdued the destructive prejudices of the people. He found eighty-four patients under piles of feather-beds, who, when pure air was admitted, breathed once more freely, and by a prudent cooling system all recovered easily and without danger, one only excepted. His method reminds us of the old English treatment, the disease was confined entirely to Röttingen. It did not make its appearance anywhere beyond the gates of this little town. On the 5th of December, however, clear, frosty weather set in. From that time no new cases occurred, and all traces of this Röttingen sweating fever, which was never either preceded or followed by miliary fever in any part of Franconia, have from that time disappeared. The resemblance of this fever to the English sweating sickness is manifest, and is proved even by the short, only ten days, duration of the visitation, which, as we have stated, is a most essential characteristic of the English sweating epidemic, at least as it appeared in Germany, the miliary epidemics always having lasted a much longer period. But if we confine ourselves merely to the symptoms of the disease, we shall find that in the Röttingen sweating fever there are throughout none that can be considered essential except the palpitation of the heart accompanied with anguish, the profuse perspiration, and the rheumatic pains in the nape of the neck, which were never wanting in any case. And the very same symptoms are clearly and perceptibly to be discerned in like proportion as compared with others in the representation of the English sweating sickness, whereas the eruptions were altogether as unessential as in the epidemic of the sixteenth century. The irritability of the skin, the tendency to dangerous metastases, were less marked in the Röttingen fever than in the English sweating sickness, where the patients could, without injury, change their linen in the midst of the perspiration, which in the English sweating sickness could not have been done without fatal consequences. But this difference can easily be accounted for from the greater degree of suffering in the latter disease than in the former. It only now remains to examine the duration of the disease. And here we plainly perceive that the principal paroxysm was over in the Röttingen epidemic within the first four and twenty hours, at least when it was undisturbed by treatment. 
and the sole symptom which continued until the sixth day, the increased perspiration, we speak here only of perfectly pure cases, could only reasonably be regarded as a sequela. The crisis did not occur all on a sudden, as in the English sweating sickness, but this cannot constitute any essential difference. We do not hesitate, therefore, to pronounce the Röttingen fever to have been the same disease as the English sweating sickness. To give, however, this phenomenon its proper interpretation, to have a clear conception of the causes which again drew down from the clouds into the midst of Germany, this misborn spectre of 1529, and allowed it to extend its brief fury upon a single place, is beyond the power of human wisdom. Science is not comprehensive enough to discover, in the crossings of these unknown comet paths, the moving causes of this visitation of disease. But as all insight into the works of nature must be preceded by a strict investigation and search after phenomena in all countries, at all times, and under all circumstances of development, so an improved knowledge of diseases and of the whole human system will not fail to follow when the investigations of epidemics throughout extensive periods have increased in number and success. The present age demands such a knowledge of medical men, whose vocation it is to investigate life minutely in all its bearings. It demands of them a historical pathology, and to this branch of the study of nature is the present work intended to contribute. End of section 34